Hello and welcome to Square Hole, the podcast that explores neurodiversity, employment and the creative industries. I'm your host, Sazie Klivacher. In this episode, one of our producers, Janook Sarkar, will be talking to Koti Balash. Koti is a professional project manager based in Bristol with a background in working as a disability advisor for Goldsmiths University and University of the Arts London. This is a really insightful conversation, touching on students getting tested and diagnosed with neurodiverse conditions, as well as the varying kinds of support available to help these creatives navigate their learning experience at university. So thanks for joining us. For the listeners, can you tell us your name and pronouns and your current position at work and experiences in the creative sector? Okay, so my name is Kati. My pronouns are she, her and they. Um, I currently work as a transformation project manager at a learning disability charity. And that's quite a recent career change. Um, I used to work in higher education at a couple of London-based universities. So that's where I've come from. And then before that, I worked for a um, charity supporting deaf children. So um, I've worked in disability for quite a long time and volunteered since I was, you know, 16, doing things around advocacy and rights and things like that, more specifically for deaf people. Yeah, so a really whole range of work within the disability sector, but some of those roles speaking towards like supporting disabled people in creative learning environments as well. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so um, it's really the reason why I kind of invited you to like come and speak to us on this podcast because of our shared experiences of supporting disabled um, students in higher education. But um, specifically within that, looking at neurodiversity and just wanting to gain your perspective on some of the experiences you had. So can you tell us your connection to neurodiversity? Yeah, so I think from a really early age, I was around neurodiversity because my father is dyslexic. You know how they say doctors have terrible handwriting? My father was next level. Um, and... I have lived experience of disability. I don't, I'm not neurodivergent, but I am profoundly deaf, so I understand. And I know firsthand how I feel to perceive the world differently. And the frustration of experiencing barriers because this is a society that's geared towards normal people for a really long time. And I think more recently, in the last six years, I've really gained a practical understanding of supporting neurodivergent students and have an understanding of the kind of barriers that um, people who are neurodivergent might have um, and kind of anticipating what they might be, even if they can't articulate that themselves. Yeah, I, I understand that because um, 
Yeah, I guess the next question sort of speaks to that in a way because you were another story within what your connection to diversity is that you explained was figuring out practical ways to support students. Can you tell us a couple of examples of experiences working in the universities or higher education departments that you mentioned um, that aim to support neurodiverse students? Um, So I was supporting a student who had um, a diagnosis of um, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia and anxiety and it was quite interesting so because of her barriers specifically around literacy and being able to articulate her thoughts and her diagnostic assessment report, the educational psychologist has said she should have 50% extra time in exams. Um, and then due to her anxiety, she also wanted and was entitled to red breaks, which um, the standard adjustment was 15 minutes every hour and I think it's quite standard um, for um, students who are neurodivergent to be offered 25% so 50% is a bit more unusual outside of the standard adjustments that would be offered to a student and we were talking and I was thinking well if you have a two-hour exam but 50% of the time, that becomes three hours, and then you've got to factor in rest breaks. And that's a three and a half hour exam. Is that really accessible? Is that really a reasonable adjustment to offer that? And so I talked to her about it. And um, I think she agreed that a three and a half hour exam was not going to be an accessible um, method of assessment for her. Um, so I supported her to make a request, a request to the department for alternative assessment. Yeah. Um, and so I think from memory she did a one hour exam with extra time and rest breaks. And then she did a five hour, which is an oral exam. And that was much better. But I think that was the first time the department had ever had to do that. So they had to um, think about how they were going to make it a good and fair and equal assessment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know that you've worked in those sort of two higher education institutions where there have been highly creative courses and then um, some that have creative elements where there are more structured kind of uh, learning experiences like an exam but for the more creative kind of subjects have there been any kind of real challenges in supporting a neurodiverse student in like putting adjustments in place that felt that it still connected with the the course if you like or their creativity with their creativity I'm just having a thunk. Yeah. Um, so, yes. Um, we, I um, supported um, a couple of students who were doing um, undergraduate design. 
and the way the course was structured, it's incredibly practical. And um, so I decided to make student ready to be a designer. And so it's very time pressured, fast paced, um, like the group work, like the projects. And um, yeah, it's back to two had the grant running in a sense. And I think without appropriate support, that can be really, really challenging. And so the two students I was supporting on that course were both neurodivergent. Um, Shafati came to me saying, you know, I, um, I cannot keep up, I can't meet the requirements of this course. And my course leader was sad. If you want to be a designer, you have to be able to do those. This is the real world kind of thing. And so then I had to have a separate meeting with the course leader and say, no, okay, I appreciate you. I tried to make it realistic and um, challenge your students. But think about what adjustment they might have in the workplace. How could you apply that in the context of university? Um, and so then I think that was quite a challenging question for him. I can imagine. <laughs> yes. Well, I can't imagine. I, I can understand and empathise because I've had some of those conversations too. Yes. What was the outcome? Like, did he think through it with you? What was the response? Yeah, so um, he... With those two students, he sat down with them individually and went through the entire academic year and said, this is exactly what I'm going to be doing so that they knew what to expect and they could kind of plan ahead rather than feeling like it had been sprung upon them. And he also kind of had a slightly more open door policy so that when they got an assignment brief, they didn't understand or they were worried about going down the wrong direction with it because they were worried about interpreting the question um, in the wrong way. They were able to go back to him and say, hi, can I just talk to you about this um, and just get a little bit more guidance and supervision yeah that's really important you know you and I know that many higher education institutions can be quite process driven like in the way that they operate they have to work to a timetable and build the course content across certain timelines and assessments come into account so with those process driven kind of elements have you found working with a neurodivergent individual whether that's staff or students because uh, that can be the case um, who perhaps find it difficult to follow linear processes like with the example of those two students on the design course was that part of the problem that they were experiencing that they couldn't follow linear processes or was it the time sensitivity more. Um, I think it was both. So I think 
they bowed over so bad, I suppose, and they didn't know what was coming up next. And when they got that timetable, I would just know the names of the radios um, and there was no detail. Um, and so no, they knew when all that deadline was, they knew when all that um, teaching time was. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they didn't know what the content was going to be or what the expectation was of them. And I think I was just kind of flashing that out. Um, and the abstract thing on the timetable to something a bit more tangible and meaningful um, and putting it in a way that they understood. Because you'd mentioned the assessment and screening process, I don't want to drill down into the detail because I know we could be here forever <laughs> talking about that and explaining it. But around that process, like how how does it differ to support a neurodivergent student compared to like neurotypical students, would you say? So I think differences um it's really difficult to speak generally because I think the spectrum within neurodiversity is so varied, but I think it's about and it's also about tailoring support to the individual student. Um so I could have examples, but I don't think they could apply to everyone. So just to be clear, um everyone is different and that no kind of one size fits all. Um I think often with neurodivergent students, they might have had loads of support at home or in school. And so then that, that change to university or even from undergraduate to postgraduate can be really hard. Because if you suddenly go into the environment where there's a lack of structure and not very much contact time, which is really common with art-based courses, it makes it even more challenging because then, you know, trying to impose that that routine and that structure in yourself um, can be a process of trial and error. Um, and so then knowing you would offer some guidance around what they might lose, um, particularly with kind of assistive technology. Um, yeah. And I think uh, also one thing I really often see with neurodivergent students is that they are more likely to experience anxiety, um, often related to academic um, staff, but also just generally think like public speaking, reading um, can trigger a lot of anxiety for some of these students. Um, so I think the reassurance and talking about what they've been challenging is really important yeah. and supporting them to speak with that course leader might be really helpful because I think sometimes academic staff might not appreciate what aspect of the curriculum or assessment might be really difficult for that neurodivergent student. Yeah, I, I totally, it's bringing back lots of memories of supporting neurodivergent students and also for me because I got diagnosed like later on it's the reason why I started thinking about getting an assessment because I started to recognize these patterns in the way that I work like all the things that you just explained about anxiety um and kind of yeah 
what kind of efforts it takes to speak in public and organize time and yeah all of those things it's yeah it's reassuring that you had sort of similar experiences with supporting neurodivergent students have you had any specific barriers highlighted to you during your time as a disability advisor in that creative higher education uh, institution that kind of feels like in your opinion was often overlooked in terms of like providing support for yeah so I think grief work is kind of an underrated challenge for neurodivergent students I don't know if actually to the word I know that often tutors don't do enough to establish grand rules about how group, group work should be done or to offer support to students who need help with kind of navigating those group dynamics. Right. But they don't like understanding social cues, concentrating, not being distracted by noise or movement, particularly if you're in a big room or a big studio with lots of different people doing group work. Um, if it's time pressured or technical, um, being like you can contribute to the discussion in a meaningful way, um, trying to multitask, maybe not trying to take notes at the same time, um, I think that's really um, not recognised as a challenging thing in a lot of arts and creative courses that loads of focus on group work. Um, and I was supporting one neurodivergent student who was um, incredibly structured and very stuck in the result with meeting deadlines and organising their workload. Um, and it was a very important coping mechanism of theirs. Um, and they just found group work impossible. They found it incredibly anxiety inducing because they found, you know, things like, Everyone else in my group is in pulling my diary. They're too relaxed about the time scales of the project. And that ended up having a knock-on impact on um, the other work. And these are like real-life examples, as in thinking about a creative brief that they might go on to work on and collaborate with others on. Like group work situations are definitely something that you'd encounter in like their creative careers so yeah to unpack how that could work in a university environment feels really important to do did you ever see a successful kind of I don't know strategy put in place for that um yeah so I worked with one student who um, had autism and um, had a lot of people at contact us. So we talked to the tutor together, the course leader, and um, said, you know, if we can create this kind of environment, it will make the group work much easier. So um, we moved. Um, it was a timetable nightmare. We moved <laughs> from 
Well, there were no windows because that was very distracting for the student. Um, and so in that particular um, department building, there were a lot of um, glass walls. So you could see people walking up and down the corridor and that was really distracting. And um, then we got um, light bulbs. There were um, like daylight bulbs to reduce sensory overload. Um, so it's just about working out the right environment to try and encourage that student to be able to do the group work rather than just saying, okay, like, forget the group work, you don't need to do it because it's too difficult. It's about trying to think creatively and go, okay, how can you make this as easy as possible? Um, and trying to remove some of these barriers. So what I'm picking up, not feeling um, that they have to feel isolated from that part of learning or part of experience. I'm not told, oh, don't worry about that. Just don't do it. That makes you feel bad and you feel like you're missing out or they're not showing your worth. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess with that, because it's something that I often wonder about those kind of situations, like how do you think that might translate for that student in a creative working environment? I would hope that having gone through that experience um, when they go into the workplace or wherever, that they were able to say, this is what I had at university and it worked really well for me. Can you work out something here? Yeah, let's hope that that happens. Um, this question is around the, the pandemic and what what happened to the way that teaching was delivered and what that meant for neurodivergent students that need different types of support. Have you got anything that, yeah, you've experienced during that period of time? I think... Definitely through the first lockdown, people were not leaving the house, they were not going out and they were incredibly restricted in that kind of freedoms, um, in the budgetary to a computer or sometimes a phone if they didn't have a computer, that could be the case. And I think any structures or routine that they might have had just fell apart and was thrown out of the window because they couldn't go out. Um, and that obviously also affects no mental health. And going to a seminar, going online to a seminar. <laughs> so one student I worked with really struggled with the fact that everyone turned their cameras off. So she couldn't see anyone. She couldn't see who was talking. And she did not feel connected or engaged at all because well, she could hear which voices coming out of her computer. And she felt incredibly demotivated and um, disempowered by that. Yeah, that's interesting because I think alongside that, there were some, well, this is only from my experience on the other side in higher education, but maybe not in a support role at this point, there were some benefits in terms of support that traditionally some tutors would not be willing to 
do for to support neurodivergent students actually became essential to everyone so it felt like an inclusive thing was happening yeah i agree absolutely that was a huge opportunity for um for something to be made um like across the board for all yeah. students so actually then you were saying um in the budget design principles actually happening yeah yeah it was quite um amazing and also kind of reflecting what was going on in creative industries you know having work meetings in the same way um making sure they record things or send things in advance or yeah it it was quite a special time i think for people certain individuals that i was definitely speaking to in the creative industry who were neurodivergent and would often battle with these things yeah um what kind of advice would you give to a student that may suspect that they are neurodivergent or do you have any tips about someone who's already got a diagnosis of being neurodivergent from say school and they're about to go to uni or they're transitioning from one place to another like they've finished uni or about to finish uni and now they're wondering how they put these adjustments in place when they go out into the creative working world. The first part of all question which was around students suspecting that they might be neurodivergent um, if they haven't got a diagnosis, I would say um, to go for a screening and an assessment because I think sometimes having that diagnosis and understanding how we school across all these different tasks can help you to understand yourself better and to make sense of past, past experiences um, and not blaming yourself for being slow or whatever. And, and I think the other kind of very practical thing is once you've got that diagnosis, you are entitled to support and adjustment in education and the workplace and the Equality Act. And it can be exhausting trying to cope. And you shouldn't have to when the support is there and you have a right to it. And then in terms of the second part about transitioning, um, if we're transitioning into university and to work, I would seek out support from the disability advisor at the university or from HR or no line manager at work. Um, and even if they have a disabled staff network, getting involved in that, because that's a really good um, support pool to tap into. And I think another thing is be open-minded to trying new things because you are operating in a different context than you have been before. And there'll be a different set of challenges and a different set of opportunities. And technology is moving so fast now. There might be something amazing that can help you there that wouldn't have helped you before. Um, and no, I can barely keep up with all the apps. that's such good advice and tips because yeah actually it draws upon something that you said earlier that I wanted to pick up on here which was you mentioned earlier on about supporting a student and it was a real trial and 
testing process to get it right and I think having the bravery to kind of just keep going with that or the confidence to sort of make sure that in all the different places that you study your work in that you at least ask and explain and the more that you go through that transition the more confidence you'll have to ask for certain things yeah yeah um what advice would you give to any to encourage any creative tutors so tutors out there that are working in uh creative uh higher education institutions uh listening in what advice would you give them who are looking to support neurodivergent learners um yeah is there anything that you think would demonstrate that a tutor is being inclusive to neurodiverse learners so my advice would be listen that student is the expert on their own disability and their own needs it's really important to be an ally and offer support where it is needed and wanted not to push it on them and also make use of the experts there's a disability advisor or a disability service there who are literally employed by the university to support making an accessible and inclusive environment. Take up all the training you can, be aware of that student reasonable adjustments and implement them when they're needed. You know, actually read the stuff to continue. If you think maybe something not right or something missing, encourage that student to go back to the disability advisor to review that support package. Oh my God, you've said all the things that I would have thought of. <laughs> and um, Koti, I know that you're not working in higher education specifically in the support roles, but you're still working in you know, the disability sector and for an organisation doing some great work. Is there anything that you'd like to promote or make our audience aware of? So I work for a charity called Who's Up To? Who support learning disability who support people with learning disability to live the best life possible. And there's various elements to the charity, but the parties um, kind of care, homes, um, supported living. Um, there's even a friendship and dating service. So there's quite a broad range of things that HFT does. Because there is a health and social care crisis, they've recognised that they need to make some big changes yeah. to be sustainable and to really support the people they serve, which is people adults with learning disabilities. Um, and so they've created the new team, which is a change team, which is where I've come in. And yes. it's really exciting time to be joining. Um, well, there's so much change and such an appetite for change as well. Yeah, great. And no doubt you can take all your experiences from working with creative people and in higher education from your disability advice role into that. We'll put the handle of your organisation into the transcript and notes so that people can follow and check out the work that you do. But thank you so much for your time. That's all right. It's been really great like hearing your responses. It's really helpful. Thank you. You've been listening to Square Hole. 
On behalf of its creators, Lorna Allen and Janook Sarkar, we hope this episode has allowed you to consider some new pathways into your understanding of neurodiversity. We would really like to give a massive thank you to all of our interviewees for giving us their time and knowledge and talking to us about their experiences. We'd also like to extend our huge thanks to our funders at the RSA and to Zoe Law, who helped fund the production of the podcast. A huge thank you to Ade Bambala and to Carrie Morrison for their editing. A big thank you to Angus Wilson from Eames Music for arranging our music theme. Finally, thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this helps you in some way on your journey. It has certainly helped us.